the response by police was so unlawful and so violent that it points up, as nothing else did, just how diseased the police culture is. Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways our legal system doesn't work for us. I'm an attorney and your host, Mary Whiteside. You may recall from previous episodes that Daniel Prude was a 41-year-old Black man from Chicago who was visiting his family in Rochester. Daniel ran out of his brother's house in the middle of the night on March 23, 2020 in mental distress. His brother called the police asking for help. The police found Daniel. He was naked in the freezing cold, acting erratically. He was obviously unarmed, and his life ended seven days after police handcuffed him naked face down in the middle of the freezing street, put a spit sock over his head, and restrained him on the ground to where he lost consciousness, which he never regained, and he died seven days later in the hospital. The story of Daniel Prude's deadly interaction with the Rochester Police Department is like George Floyd before George Floyd. The police and government officials hid details of his death from the public for months. Only after police killed George Floyd in Missouri did the body cam footage about Daniel Prude's last minutes get released to his family, and they held a press conference to inform the public. Afterwards, protests broke out all over the city in the area. The police cracked down brutally. In this episode, we will have Don Thompson give you an update now on how Daniel Prude's family's wrongful death litigation against the police and city government is going, also about the prosecutions of of the protesters. And Don filed a civil rights lawsuit against the city and state officials to deal with the decades of police brutality. Don Thompson is the managing partner of the firm Easton, Thompson, Kasparik, and Schifrin, and we are so glad that he is taking the time to speak with us again. Welcome, Don. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Great. Can you just uh, refresh everybody's memories about how you became involved with Daniel Prude's uh, unfortunate killing? Sure. Um, I had known his brother, Joseph Prude, for several years. And actually, the evening that the interaction with police took place, Joseph Prude called us uh, while the police were on his doorstep advising him that there had been an incident with Daniel. And he had attempted to obtain help for him before that. He had called 911. He had uh, taken some other actions to try to address what he thought he should do when Daniel ran out of his house into the night, obviously in distress. It was not until the police came to Joseph Prude's home that we got advised that something had happened with Daniel. And even uh, Joseph was not being told at that point exactly what had happened or what his brother's condition was. Wow. Since that first incident, how, you know, what happened after that? Sure. Well, as you've recounted, um, Daniel Prude was taken to the hospital. He never regained consciousness. The family had to make the 
heart-wrenching decision to pull the plug, basically, and allow him to die because he was effectively brain dead at that point. That was, that was Joseph's decision that he had to, to make along with his wife. Thereafter, Daniel Prude's children, and, and just to be clear, he didn't have a lot of contact with some of his children, and it's not really clear who his children are or how many of them there are. But his putative, a word we use in the law to say, you know, presumptive children, brought a lawsuit against the city of Rochester, the police department, for wrongful death with respect to Daniel. They just recently settled that lawsuit for $12 million that is now going to be distributed between, given the laws relating to wills and estates in New York, between the children that survived Daniel, at least those who can demonstrate that they are, in fact, children. So that was essentially the conclusion of the wrongful death case relating to Daniel Prude's killing by police. Okay, so his brother and his other family members did not file a lawsuit, just his children. Right. Well, based upon the, the laws of trust and estates in New York, if you have surviving children, they are the preferred heirs. And if children cannot be found, then you look for parents. If parents cannot be found, then you look for brothers and sisters, and it goes out across the family tree from there. Well, here we had a number of uh, individuals who indicated that they were, in fact, his children, so they would have a preference. I see. And Rochester Mayor Malik Evans, when he announced this this settlement, uh, he said that, quote, it would have cost taxpayers more to litigate. It's now time to look forward so we may work together and focus our efforts on Rochester's future. Taxpayers are paying that $12 million settlement to Prude's family. So they're already paying a huge cost for this deadly incident that happened in Rochester. And, you know, that's a pretty weak statement by the mayor. What do you think? Well, I, I think it, it may be weak, but I think it's probably accurate. I mean, as you noted, uh, the juxtaposition in time here between this incident and the George Floyd incident was not going to help the city any when this case came to trial. Uh, this was very much, much too much like George Floyd, and we saw the responses to that incident as that developed in the press. So I I think it was probably an accurate assessment on the part of the city that any damage award from a jury in the Western District of New York, would they go to trial and have to present this case, could have been much, much higher. Yeah. I got the the final report from the independent investigation of the city. Uh, have you had a chance to review that at all or seen that? I've seen it just briefly. I haven't, I can't say I've reviewed it in depth. Well, it it's pretty concerning because it really appears from this independent investigation that the city knew about this and it is unclear whether the true nature of Prude's death would ever have been revealed to his family if lawyers hadn't gotten involved to uh, demand the release of the body cam footage. Yeah, I'm, I'm confident that it would not have been 
disclosed. And in fact, you, you had indicated uh, earlier that the city had disclosed the body cam footage. Uh, we were actually the ones that, that disclosed it at a press conference uh, because the city wasn't doing so. And we felt at that point they weren't dealing in good faith with Daniel Prude's family uh, or with really the citizens of Rochester to, to account for what had taken place. And I think this, this independent investigation lays that out. The mayor, uh, who was Lovely Warren at the time, she learned on March 23rd about Prude's arrest. And they launched uh, RPD, Rochester Police Department, launched criminal and internal investigations into that arrest that day. They informed the mayor about that. He didn't pass away until, you know, around March 30th, March 31st. And during the same time period, the chief of police, Laurent Singletary, he did not reassign any of the officers involved to administrative duty, which is typical what happens when there's a, a, a police killing and they're investigating. And then on the 3rd, that's when the family sends a, a letter to preserve the evidence and makes a request for the release of, of that information. And what I found pretty interesting was that the day before that, the police had turned over the body cam footage to the Locust Club. And that's that's the police union, right? They're called the Locust Club of their the police union. That's right. Okay. Yes. So, you know, I understand when you're in a pickle that you go to your union to talk about that. But it isn't until after you file a notice of claim in July that they even show the, the footage to the mayor. So all this time they're trying to they're trying to pressure the law department to withhold it and they're trying to deny the the, the request to release it and they they're making everybody jump through a million hoops. It's really upsetting that there appeared to have been quite a cover up in play. Yeah, which is kind of standard for um, incidents like this where a death occurs and where there's potentially some serious liability and, you know, the, the local politics part of it, which is repeated, you know, uh, across the country when you, you have an incident like this is, you know, sort of the wheels came flying off of city government. There were allegations back and forth about the police chief lying to the mayor, the mayor lying to the police chief, you know, lack of accountability, you know, intentional misrepresentations to the public. You know, everybody is trying to push the hot potato off their plate as best they can. Uh, so, you know, they have some competing interests at that point among themselves, you know, trying to preserve their own skins. Well, this independent report found that city officials, corporation council, did make statements that were untrue saying that the uh, attorney general's office, they had gotten involved in the investigation and therefore because they were involved, they weren't letting them release the body cam footage, which was disputed and was found to that they made city officials made untrue statements. We call them untrue, call them lies, however you want to phrase it. You know, that was that was found in this independent report. So, you know, there's there, there's some truth and so, and some substantiation of those claims of cover-up in this independent report. Yeah, that that corporation counsel, I should have mentioned, is now gone as well. I assume because he was publicly called out for making misrepresentations. 
Right. So you have the chief of police, Leron Singletary. He gets fired as a result of this. And he is now running for Congress in Rochester. Yeah, he's on the Trump ticket. Yeah. And people are concerned that he has a decent chance of of really falling upward, <laughs> what if, yeah. ending up as in Congress. You know, when the reason he's not in the police anymore is because he was covering up this terrible police killing. Right. And uh, it's amazing to me that uh, that particular race is even considered close, but it is. All right. So you have this press conference where the family discusses the body cam footage and they release and they release that to the public. And this is in the midst of nationwide protests for Black Lives Matter after George Floyd. And I, I, I would assume that people in Rochester are pretty upset that this killing had happened before that and had been covered up. And that kind of fueled some pretty intense protests in Rochester. And then the if we could just give a brief um, recap again on on the crackdown from the Rochester Police Department, because it was extremely brutal. Yeah. Um, can I swear? She absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. I might, I might have to for this part. Uh, so understandable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in, right. In response to uh, release of the body cam footage of Daniel Prude's killing and the, the revelation that basically, you know, every city official in charge had lied to the public, you know, people were understandably upset. There were protests, massive protests for night after night after night, which scared the crap out of the police and they spazzed. They had Monroe County Sheriff's Department, Rochester Police Department. They had uh, law enforcement officers from around the state come here to uh, engage in what they euphemistically refer to as crowd control with their you know urban attack vehicles and tear gas canisters, pepper balls, uh, you know, charging in a line against peaceful protesters, uh, many of whom were injured when they were struck by tear gas canisters, which, by the way, are never supposed to be fired at any level above the waist. People are were hit in the head, in the, in the ear. One individual lost an eye. Wow. The total number of pepper balls was in the many thousands that were fired. They keep track of this stuff apparently. Um, and the, you know, the protesters, as we've seen in other peaceful protest situations that are escalated by police violence, were out there with umbrellas to protect themselves from the projectiles being shot at them or heaved at them by police and uh, out there with wet rags to be able to breathe despite the tear gas and the pepper spray. Uh, and it went on for many nights, many nights in a row, and many people were injured, some more seriously than others. There are a number of women who have uh, menstrual issues following the protests, and it's pretty well documented that um, tear gas and or the pepper ball component uh, can affect the menstrual cycle. Uh, so that's a, a maybe a more long-lasting and serious medical concern. I had never heard that before. Yeah. 
we're now doing some investigation for uh, or with, I guess, uh, some nationwide experts in this area to be able to demonstrate because there are there's actually one woman who had a, a miscarriage shortly after the protests. There are many women who have said I had uh, uh, issues and an interruption in my menstrual cycle following being exposed for a night or maybe several nights to this tear gas pepper spray. Uh, and, and these were all, you know, effects that were known. In fact, they're included in the, the, the cautionary literature for uh, these devices that are provided to law enforcement. So there's no, no, no question that they're aware of these potential side effects. They just, they didn't care. Right. And they also arrested uh, a lot of protesters. Isn't that true? They, they arrested a lot of protesters. Uh, that was another form of, you know, the abusive police response where, for example, they would take them to a far-flung station or uh, barracks and, you know, not have them with any means to get a ride back to where they had left their car, you know, just kind of drop them in the middle of the countryside and hold them unlawfully for, you know, many hours in some cases or overnight. Uh, Many of those, if not most of those cases were immediately dropped by, although initiated by the police, dropped by the district attorney uh, because they had no merit. They were simply retaliation for people exercising their right to protest. Still, the courts have to process all of that and people have to take time and if they're not held, have to go to court. So it's it's a huge inconvenience, even if it is dismissed quickly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't mean to make light of it. I mean, there are a number of protesters who spent at least a night in jail waiting to get arraigned and processed and released. There were some felonies that were prosecuted by the by federally for police car damage. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's right. There were. Yeah, there were some property damage incidents that were federally prosecuted, which appeared to be attributable not to people who were really engaged in the protest at all, okay, but to people who opportunistically used that incident and that chaos to be able to uh, engage in their own personal desires to destroy property. So it sounds like those cases have mostly resolved, if not all resolved by this point. I think, yeah, most, if not all, I'm not sure if they've all resolved, but those have all worked their way through the system as well. Okay. Now, what I think is really interesting is that as a result of of getting involved in this, that you also initiated uh, a class action lawsuit against the Rochester Police Department and also city and state officials for decades of police brutality. And I would love you to kind of give an overview of that of that uh, lawsuit and where it stands. Sure. Well, the initial motivation for bringing the lawsuit was the number of protesters who were assaulted by police um, wrong and wrongfully assaulted. So, you know, we have at this point, I think it's, I've lost count, but I think it's 112 plaintiffs in that category of people who are injured, you know, more or less, uh, as the case may be, by unlawful police conduct. 
And But beyond the simple wrongful injury claims, we have brought a class action lawsuit, which is in the process of being certified as a class. It's, a, it's amazingly complicated, this process, to, to get a class certified. And there are a number of elements that have to be established. I think there's there's little or no question that we'll be able to establish those elements, but we've we've pulled in uh, some experts in uh, class litigation. Baker Hostetler uh, is a firm who's uh, associated with uh, plaintiff's representation, has his Newfeld check in Bruston, uh, Roth and Roth in New York City, uh, where we have often had these these injury cases. Uh, my firm. Uh, so it's a it's a real undertaking to do this. But the idea behind the class action is to obtain what's called injunctive relief, to change the way of policing in Rochester and in Monroe County. Uh, and one of the things that uh, can be done, and we're waiting to see if the court will order it or if the parties will be able to stipulate to it, is that there are organizations that examine uh, policing and police conduct and make recommendations for best practices and what needs to be changed and how it should be changed. Uh, There are also uh, the opportunities for either uh, mediators or, you know, we've seen a lot about special masters these days to basically to oversee Uh, if there are recommended changes, that those changes are taking place the way that they are supposed to, that the parties are complying with the obligations to make these changes. Because, you know, there's there's a lot of need for change, and I think policing in general, but in particular, in this case, um, the response by police was so unlawful and so violent that it points up, as nothing else did as effectively previously, just how diseased the police culture is when dealing with civilians that they perceive as the enemy. People who are protesting things that they don't agree with, people who are outnumbering the number of police who are present, which scares the crap out of them, by the way. They never like to be outnumbered. So, you know, all of these are sort of symptoms of the, the underlying problem of the recruiting, the training, the ongoing discipline, little as it is, of police in the field. So we're trying to change that. Yeah, I had I recently had on the podcast Alec Karakatsanis. He's a civil rights attorney as well, and and he uh, wrote this chapter of his book, uh, Usual Cruelty, on on the you know the he calls it the prison bureaucracy, right? The bureaucracy, this huge bureaucracy and funding that goes into you know what is colloquially known as law enforcement, and he kind of cautioned against these. Uh, against, you know, progressive or liberal democratic reformers getting kind of taken in by these former policemen or former prosecutors, people who whose job previously coming up was putting people in in jail, in prison, you know, building up this 
this huge uh, apparatus of, of law enforcement re- refashioning themselves as reformers and then coming in and recommending changes that actually aren't particularly effective or cost a ton of money adding you know things like body cam footage which is something he says the police wanted along they wanted it they just didn't know how to fund it and so by partnering with reform agents they they can get funding for things that more equipment things that they like where there's actual data that shifting money to mental health providers as first responders would be um, much more effective and also and safer for everybody involved. Is that something that you're considering trying to get put through where, where they would have teams of mental health providers be the first responders to a mental health arrest like Daniel Prudes? Yeah, exactly. There's there's a process here for that now that's kind of a fledgling operation. Um, there's a lot of resistance to it. You know, people are more interested. Resistance from who? Well, re- resistance from, based upon the online commentary, you know, right-wing conservative haters who want to crack down on people and punish them for basically having mental health issues. You know, they don't see why police hadn't ought to be able to go out and throw them in the back of a police car, you know, cause I'm never going to be in that situation. So, Hey, I'm not worried about it happening to me. And, you know, these people are making a, a disturbance and, you know, they're not being respectful of or complying with the directives of police officers. So What's the big problem? You know, I don't see any problem with cracking down on them but or punishing. Them. It seems there's some. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, well, it seems to me that a lot of that public opinion comes from the again, we, just to get back to the the police union. They 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 send their representatives out and give a bunch of interviews. I mean, they're called the Locust Club. The Locust is a is a huge pest. I think it's aptly named because they send their their spokespeople out there, and that is the narrative that gets great uh, media coverage, which is, you know, that that we need to be tough on crime, we need to be tough on on these people, and that they should be just complying with whatever the police officers tell them to do. Yeah, my my own. This is going to go beyond our class action here. It's probably three or four steps down the road, but my own feeling about you know, police reform and how it's going to work is, or if it's going to work, is that it's not going to work until individual officers are personally accountable. So like in the wrongful death case against Daniel Prude, not a dime of that 12 million is going to come out of any of the officers' pockets who were actually involved in his death because the city indemnifies them. You know, it would be a different situation if you're found to engage in unlawful conduct or criminal conduct if, you know, part of the damage award came out of your 401k plan. That might encourage you to behave a little bit better. But, you know, to be clear, too, the city here found no wrongdoing on the part of any of these officers that were involved in Daniel Prude's death. That's another part of the problem is the internal review of the police misconduct, which is what leads to 
civil actions, such as the one that resulted in this $12 million award for Daniel Prude's family members, because the internal review is essentially no review. It's police officers apologizing for the misconduct of other police officers. My other prong of my reform that would be required in order to make real change is to dissolve the Locust Club. So they're a union. So generally, I like unions. Unions are good. They help support their employees. I know, me too. I like unions. Yeah. I have, I'm so conflicted about police unions because I'm very pro-union. Well, I'm, I'm not conflicted because this is actually, you know, a racketeering-involved corrupt organization, which, you know, will get prosecuted in, in federal court in any other circumstance other than, you know, they're representing the right club. So, the, and the, the Locust Club, why is it called the Locust Club? Well, Locust is a very hard wood. It's the wood that their police batons were made of, that they beat people with. Now they're metal, but it used to be made out of locust wood. So how sick is that, right? That is is disgusting. Yeah, it's sort of the us against them model, which is completely what the union is. They will defend the actions of any officer, no matter how criminal. You never see the union take a position and say, well, if... That was kind of overstepping the line. You know, the officer probably shouldn't have done that. It doesn't matter what the officer does. Their job is to defend the actions of the officer. And they, to be clear, have, you know, no fealty to the law. They don't care about whether the conduct was legal or not legal. You've seen this across the country and also in New York State with some sheriffs and some police unions saying, you know, uh, these new gun laws that we don't like, we're just not going to enforce them because we don't want to. You know, they're not consistent with our view of what the law should be. So uh, we're not going to enforce them. You know, when... Is that like the the constitutional sheriffs? Yeah. So, you know, when did the police get the right to choose which laws they enforce or which laws they don't? Well, you know, they think, They can choose whatever they want to do and no one can say anything about it, in part because they're empowered by these police unions who will defend their every action. It's the cancer that's at the heart of the system and needs to be addressed. And I think until we address that, we, the rest of the community who aren't part of the police club, until we address that, it's ultimately not going to get better. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. And it's hard because again, they they have a lot of media contacts and they get more press time than the other side. So they they have a huge influence over public perceptions about the levels of crime, dangerousness. They they have a really kind of outsized voice for what they what they represent. Possibly because, you know, they're they're organized. They represent all police. And the other side are individual specific cases. So I think bringing a big lawsuit, you do get you do get a larger group of people agitating for change. So I'm a bit hopeful that we can get some look at this. I mean, the, the Department of Justice could also come in and look at Rochester's police department. Have you considered asking for that type of a review. 
Well, they, they certainly could, as could the attorney general's office. And I believe the attorney general's office is doing their own independent investigation of Rochester policing, which may or may not, you know, dovetail with ours. But, you know, I think uh, they've gotten the word that there are issues with policing in Rochester. And, you know, they are the overarching law enforcement agency, including of law enforcement agents in New York State. So that would be the kind of the next logical step up the ladder, you know, and they would be empowered to enact or require on their own some of this injunctive relief that we're looking for. Um, I don't know if they're going to do that or not, but I believe that, you know, my ear to the ground uh, belief is that they are doing something in the way of investigation into the quality of policing in Rochester. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we kind of recapping what you've been saying, there are processes that could be followed right now that could hold officers accountable, could hold the department accountable. They have their own internal processes that they could they could actually really review police action and make disciplinary moves. They could fire officers. So the police department could take, they could police themselves. The district attorney's office could also do investigations and they could bring charges against officers for violations of the criminal law, which doesn't tend to happen very often. And as you were just saying, you know, the attorney's general's office could come in. So it's not like, it's not like there isn't an apparatus for police officers to be held accountable. It's more the will of the people in those positions of power and they're abdicating their their duty to do that. Would you agree? Right. I mean, they 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 could do all of that right now. You're exactly correct. They're going to do none of it until forced to. In part because the Locust Club will bay at the moon if there is any sort of restriction on the conduct of law enforcement officers or any real accountability, as we've seen with the with the the public accountability board for police, you know they want to make the Locust Club wants to make sure that any civilian review of police conduct is completely toothless and unable to initiate any change because you know they won't suffer anyone else telling them what to do. It, it, all of those things could be done now, but they won't be done unless forced through, for example, this, this class action lawsuit. And, and these things are no secret. You know, if you talk to people who are in authority on either side of the aisle or on the many sides of the aisle who are not unintelligent people, you know, they will tell you the same thing. They will acknowledge that there are, you know, you could name them off the top of your head. There are a dozen officers who need to be fired because you're not going to be able to get them to conform their conduct to appropriate standards. You can't retrain it out of them. You just have to start with better stock. And, you know, we could, I could name off the top of my head the names of those officers if I chose to because they're notorious. Notorious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure I would. I'm sure they would trigger my memory. I'm sure you would. Know. You would know most, if not all of them as well. And you know what? The folks in city government know them, too, because they yeah. wind up 
defending the lawsuits that these guys, and they're almost overwhelmingly guys, there's a couple of women, but you know, we're, we're, we're integrating some slowly, but uh, almost overwhelmingly guys who result in these civil misconduct suits. So they see their names a bunch. You know, they, they could certainly do that. They could engage in different recruitment processes and different training processes. And they could have, you know, sanctions for the failure to comply with or to follow up on training. They don't really have any of that right now because their their internal police officer disciplinary process is all secret. It's not quite a secret these days because the legislature finally got rid of Civil Rights Law 50A, which was designed to pull protect specifically police officer personnel files from public view. And their justification was, look, in order to trust the the legitimacy and the accountability of law enforcement, the public needs to be able to see what happens when misconduct takes place and the police agencies engage in this internal review. So we're going to wipe out this protection for all of these formerly confidential files. Well, there's been more litigation about that, trying to keep those things secret than there has about Trump's taxes, I think. They do not want those files coming out and they will not voluntarily provide those, despite the fact that that is what the law requires. I mean, and that kind of goes right back to the, the beginning and looking at this independent investigation that was done. I mean, the, the whole actions of the police and the city government was to cover up how Daniel Prude was killed. Right. And, and the circumstances. And so that's just their default. Yeah, they have demonstrated. That's, that's what they do all yeah, the time. Yeah, they've demonstrated that they cannot be internally accountable. They need an external force to impose accountability. Right. And so I really commend you for taking on this fight. It's not a popular one uh, amongst, you know, the the pro-cop fan clubs, but it's vitally important that that we that this gets addressed. And and you made the point that this isn't this isn't unique to Rochester. This is not unique to the Rochester Police Department or their city government. This is a problem that is rampant across the country. Each in each locality has their own problem and each locality has their own fight to take up. So thank you again for coming back and updating us on where where we're at. And uh, do you have anything, any final thoughts you want to have the listeners here? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. Thank you for having me back. You're welcome. So this episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside, mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson, social media by Jen Nicholson. You can always find this podcast on Twitter at CourtPod. Well, of course, if we stay, you know, with Musk, we'll see. Or drop an email at mayitdispleasethecourt at gmail.com. We would also love you to rate and review the show as it helps others find the program. Theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder, a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing just $9. Pain to cry, pain more.